169 prisoners are being brought for trial to this court in the city of London, the Old Bailey. Their finding of the Old Bailey car bomb that killed one man and caused 178 casualties. That I'm enormously grateful to the jury. Sensational developments from the Ford hacking trial. The judge made his ruling today. Huntley shook and turned pale. The third IRA suspect to be acquitted of terrorist charges here in a year. The sentence of the court is one of life imprisonment. Would you please take the defendant downstairs? The Old Bailey is the home of British justice. Its walls have formed the theatre to our greatest national dramas. To Oscar Wilde, George Blake and Christine Keeler. To Sutcliffe, Huntley and Warboys. The IRA and Al-Qaeda. Through the rows of metal detectors, up a marble staircase, past statues of long forgotten judges, in a crowded wood panelled back room, all day long, a team of court reporters dart between hearings. They work to file the reports that go out to newspaper offices across the country. No transcripts exist in British courts. They are not televised. Without court reporters, justice is not only blind, it is mute. And there are vanishingly few court reporters left. Court News is the last specialist agency to operate from the Old Bailey. They've been here since 1985. In their vaults lie first-hand accounts of every major case of the age. I'm Gavin Haynes. In this series, we're going to be going inside British trials, through the eyes of those who see justice being done every single day. The Court News team. So I am Eddie Beaver. I am a court reporter or I should say I was because today is my last day um, as a court reporter at Central News UK, which is a news agency that writes for the Nationals and other papers across the country. Eddie Beaver is the proverbial cop about to hand in his gun and badge. He's 26, very clean cut, in a full suit. He wasn't meant to be working here. He was meant to be on the other side of the fence, working as a lawyer. But after he graduated with his law degree, he spent ages sending off applications for trainee solicitor roles, until one day, on a whim, he sent his details off to Court News UK. He went through the usual rigorous application process, which is to say, a quick vibe check from the company's co-owner, Guy Toyne. Guy prides himself on his vibe intuition. And how are you feeling on your last day? Are you melancholy? <laughs> I'm really going to miss it. It's been a bizarre year and a half. And when I was first taken on, my editors definitely took a risk with me because I didn't necessarily have any skills in journalism at all. But they took a risk and they liked me and I, I just showed willing. I think the thing I was keen, I, I was very keen. And what was the first thing you worked on? The first case? Oh, I remember one of the first cases was, I, I forget his name, but he was a photographer of various celebrities who would, in the process of his photography, take it too far, should we say, with the people he was taking pictures of. And um, yeah, I think it was his sentence. And that was interesting to go straight in with a sexual offender. That's diving in at the deep end a little bit. What does it feel like to sit in court all day to watch matters of, of life and death lay out before you? I mean, is it sort of a voyeuristic thrill? <laughs> Do you know what? I don't think it's... Thrill is difficult because 
It depends what's happening, right? So the most thrilling aspect, I think, is a verdict, a jury verdict. You know, when it's tannoyed, you know, everyone to court 10, please, immediately, all counsel. It's just, it's this thrill of, oh my goodness, they've come to a decision about the fate of this individual. And it's not even, I don't even think of, you know, in that process, you don't think, oh, they're going to be guilty and they're going to get sentenced and then they're going to go to jail. That's not really what it's about. It's that these people have concluded their judgment of their fellow man. It's this real thrill of there's a conclusion coming to this story. This summer, Eddie spent weeks working on one of the biggest police bribery cases of the age. It was the story of a web of West End nightlife players who all knew each other. Many of them were oddly glamorous, moneyed creatures. The trial touched on what modern Soho is and how it really works in the after-dark economy. At the centre of it all was one man, a bad cop. But not like a terrible cop, just a sort of greasy, easily led one. A guy who let his base appetites take over and drag him under. So Frank Partridge was a Metropolitan Police Sergeant. He's responsible for issuing licenses to various nightclubs in Soho. There are multiple crimes alleged at the various Soho venues, which were simply overlooked because of Frank Partridge being in their pocket. Um, that was definitely at least insinuated. So he was responsible for consulting with local authority over the applications for licensing premises and who was supervising the venues, making sure that they're complying with their conditions, essentially. The story of the Sheriff of Soho plays out like a farce because when you stepped back, the stakes were low. Little of what you're about to hear was big ticket crime. A pair of concert tickets here, a posh meal there, a call girl or two. Yet, despite these low stakes, the slow wheels of justice ground fine, and the petty indulgences of Sergeant Partridge ended up ripping many different lives apart. By the time he arrived in court, he was trailing another eight defendants, the bribers to his bribee. Yeah, because you had the whole group of Soho business owners, and they were quite a strange bunch, strange in the sense that they were not the average defendant that you might see at Southwark Crown Court. Shirts, quite laddish, quite, quite talkative in the dock and out. They were not, yeah, they were not the usual suspects. Actually, I distinctly remember one of them pushing in front of me in the queue to get in one day, in the security queue. They just pushed in front of me and I thought, well, that's completely indicative of your entire attitude in this whole case. <laughs> if I was a juror, I would have found them guilty there and then. <laughs> I think they were, uh, yeah, don't want to be too offensive. They had a sense of entitlement, perhaps, about them. Why do you think they had a sense of entitlement? Well, I think they were above it. They were above Southwark Crown Court. Southwark Crown Court is a notoriously disgusting and run-down court, and these were Soho business owners. You know, they, they were in the wrong setting. Things began to go really badly wrong for Frank Partridge and his many friends as far back as June 2015, as court news reporter Sophie Kenyon explains. So it's the morning of the 24th of June, it's 2015, Frank Partridge, he's on the way to Scotland Yard and he believes he's meeting, meeting a senior officer there and 
little to his knowledge. When he arrives, he's ushered into this meeting room and he's arrested. Yeah, on CCTV, it was real that it was about 10 to 2 in the morning. Franks had been interrupted by a couple of cool girls who turned up at his flat where he was sleeping. He'd been on a heavy drinking session with his mate Ryan Bishti the night before that. Uh, they'd been at this place, the Colonial Club in the Hilton, along with their drinking buddy, this man named Terry Neal. Ryan Bishti was 33 and already one of Soho's leading nightclub impresarios. The complex friendship between these three men will turn out to be many things, but a court will later find it to be one thing in particular, corrupt. Frank Partridge joined the police at the age of 17 in 1992. He was a classic lifer in that sense, pretty much typical by background. He'd risen slowly and spent some of his time in the vice squad, checking in on whether strip clubs were selling added extras around the back. In 2013, he started a new role, working with Westminster Council on licensing for London's West End. That meant he had power over some 3,000 venues. To a certain extent, it was the power of life and death. No evidence has emerged that Partridge was corrupt in any of his previous roles, but it seems that once he had this power, he clasped it tightly to him. And for two years, he rolled around Soho, day and often night, wetting his beak as he went. Club owners, security folk, restaurateurs, they would all treat Frank to little extras. There was a signed Man United Wayne Rooney football shirt. There were drinks here, dinners there, a £300 bill at the famed restaurant Nobu that was made to disappear. At Wireless Festival one year, Frank had been gifted a couple of VIP tickets and access to a free bar, not an opportunity he'd let pass by. In return for these favours, Partridge implied he would shield these hospitality businesses from the complex, messy world of licensing. As Eddie Beaver explains, licensing is a deadly serious business. Various different businesses could have their license revoked. I remember one really tough sentence where basically over, over the pandemic, this individual, I can't remember the name because it wasn't, it wasn't a huge case, but this individual had spent several hundred thousand renovating um, this club. Uh, it was definitely in Soho though, it was renovating the Soho club. Pandemic's over, renovations are finished. In the first week that they opened, there was a stabbing on the dance floor. And as a result, they lost their license. Wow. It was almost definitely, it seemed, because the security services messed up, which almost definitely would have been some third party contracted out, you know, not really the fault of the licensing owner. Well, obviously the authorities disagree, but you just think that is painful. That is just so unlucky. And now there's someone dead as well. <laughs> yeah. And in terms of the power that Frank Partridge wielded, he, he could get you closed down. Yes, he could have, I think he, yeah. He was responsible for issuing and revoking licenses. One key incident concerned his relationship with a restaurant called Sketch, a bit of a Mayfair landmark. I wondered if Sophie Kenyon had ever been. Yeah, the restaurant Sketch. No, I've not been, but I've seen it's a very Instagrammable place. It's these got these toilets that look like eggs. I think you'll see it on every sort of influencer girl's Instagram. Very Instagrammable, very affluent, aesthetic. 
I don't want to say, but you've kind of made it if you've got, if you get to sketch. It's kind of Wes Anderson vibe, right? So pinks and blues, golds. So yeah, this licensing meeting, it was Frank Partridge who, he turned up with a, like an attitude because he was incensed by their security arrangements. There'd been a couple of fights at the venue, hence why this meeting was happening. One involved two women. One had hit the other with a glass, another incident on New Year's Eve. But it was Partridge who told Sketch Lawyer that it was their security that was inadequate and they should be using, or his mate Terry Niels's TSS. As a company, TSS were designed to go heavy. Their firm had built its reputation around policing 2am nightclub queues. But Sketch wasn't like that at all. As Sophie had said, it was basically UK Wes Anderson for rich tourists. At trial, Sketch's lawyer told the court that there had been something off about the whole atmosphere at the meeting that day. He said, These meetings are usually discussed in a way that is not informal, but more of an opportunity for parties to discuss manners in a round-table fashion. What happened seemed to me more of a naughty schoolboy being told off by the headmaster. I was surprised. I thought he appeared quite heavy-handed. He came across as an officer who was new to the role in terms of licensing and wanted to put down a marker as to who was in charge. It was very much my way of the highway. The sketch team pushed back, but Partridge kept on banging the table, insisting, and in the end, he wore them down. Sketch's old security crew were given the boot and Terry Neal's TSS were installed. Neal was suitably grateful. By 2014, a team of undercover officers from the Met's internal anti-corruption squad were following Frank Partridge. In May of that year, they followed Terry Neal and Partridge to a West End tailor's shop, where they witnessed a conscious display of gratitude. Terry Neal has taken Partridge to this tailor shop and is purchasing him a £1,700 suit. And whilst that's all going on, they're blissfully unaware that they have company. They've been bugged by undercover police officers who, actually for months, Partridge had been tailed and bugged. And these undercover cops, they were, it was, it was a Operation Joseph that they'd been working on. One line that the cops overheard that day would later become key evidence at the trial. It was crucial to the trial, actually. It was, you keep them sweet and I'll sort the contracts out. For months, the Operation Joseph team had been piecing the jigsaw of Partridge's finances. There was only one piece of hospitality that he'd actually declared on the register of interests. That was a solitary bottle of champagne from a sandwich chain, Pret-a-Manger no less, which seems to have been accidentally delivered to his Victoria office. Only recently had he been made a sergeant, which entitled him to a pay rise, so his salary went to around 40000 per year. Frank was living a life of real financial security. Uh, had a property in central London, another one in Newcastle, stylish home of his own in Leighton Buzzard in Buckinghamshire, and him and his wife also co-managed a florist. Frank had become so comfortable with his nice little earners that when the cops raided his house, they found a stack of £2,000 in cash just lying on the side. He kind of just missed it out of hand, you know, like, what's the big deal? I've often got large amounts of cash lying about the place. The trial of Frank Partridge finally got underway on the 20th of April, 2023, eight years after his fateful cab journey to Scotland Yard. No one could quite figure out why it had taken that long. Covid had definitely intervened, and the anti-corruption squad that had initially brought the case had been closed down to save money. Eight defendants stood in the dock. They were Frank Partridge, 
Terry Neal, his security mate, Terry's now ex-wife, Soraya Henderson, looking visibly uncomfortable, Ryan Bishti, the owner of the Cirque du Soir, Anna Genand, the district nightclub boss, and then another three individuals who, for legal reasons, we're not going to talk about too much. Presiding over this menagerie was Judge Christopher Hayher, a small, round-faced Scotsman with a natural gentleness. Imagine the lilting Scots charm of Michael Gove, half an octave up. I think he's quite funny. He always tends to complain about the temperature of the room, whatever, whatever court I'm in. It's either too hot or it's too cold. And it's something about Southwark Grand Court, which they can never get the temperature right. But I feel like Judge Hay here, <laughs> whenever I've been there, there's something wrong with this heating. And it's, he always allows for barristers to take their wigs off and for people to sit in the dock with, you know, jackets off. But I think, yeah, was, well, I just have an image of him coming into court and maybe the first thing he'll say is, oh God, it's hot in here. And I have asked about the heating and I am working on it and I am very aware. We won't go over 26 degrees and I am sweating. And then he'll be like, okay, let's, they're moving on. It, I think it comes from a place of care for everyone in the room. And I'd say that about him, like he is a quite, I, I've always thought of him as, not that all judges, they have a sense of care, but he is caring. The jury would be asked to decide on five charges of bribery. Partridge had already pleaded guilty to another three. In each, the briber and the bribed were being tried together. For instance, Ryan Bishti's mother was also in the dock, but only because she'd helped to renovate Frank's house at the asking of her son. She had, it was explained to the court, an interest in interior design. Definitely not something you see every day in court is mother and son in the dock together. Not that it happens often, but it, you, you do expect it to be, and, and you witness it as father and son, so having your, your mum in the dock with you with something, it's just quite like, how did we get here? Yeah, it's comical. <laughs> yeah, it's, that is extremely embarrassing. I think that's the thing about court in itself. Everyone's dirty laundry is aired. So to have your mum literally also, you've brought her into that as well and she's having everything aired about her, it's humiliating. That particular charge stemmed from a moment when Partridge had been in the market for some mosaic hall tiling, a living room conversion, and shelving for a new upstairs bedroom. Because they were already such great friends, Ryan Bishti had sent his own personal builder, a Hungarian, then charged the £4,500 back to his company. Bishti had made his start in life selling tickets to concerts and church halls. He was apparently a humble Croydon lad who, by sheer entrepreneurial pluck, had climbed the ladder of the London entertainment scene, putting on raves and gigs, before going into bricks and mortar venues. By the time he made it to the West End, Bishti was pioneering a certain model of nightclub as a social spectacle. Fresh Fantasias for the easily bored Mayfair set. For instance, get through the rigorous face control of his Cirque du Soir just off Carnaby Street and you'd find snake charmers, contortionists, stilt walkers and dancers. Down the years, everyone from Bieber to Kanye to Cara Delevingne had all been there. To me, it's always just been the place where like, all the rich people go and it's, it's just sort of this place that's exclusive to the, to the rich, the famous, those with money. Yeah, there's this item on the menu, the um, Midas of Ace of Spades. It's a champagne. It comes gold-plated with a pewter label and it's £120,000 per bottle and apparently they shift maybe a couple a month. Bishti went on to open more venues, Wild by nature, boasted leopard print walls, 
snake lights and plants growing from the ceiling. Mayfair's The London Rain dubbed itself as London's first show club, offering what it called vintage Vegas-style performance art. He'd also bought the windmill, the legendary strip joint in Piccadilly, and given it a big money makeover. Bishti's longer story is a confusing string of courtworthy incidents that don't quite concern him. For instance, he was a former boyfriend of Sarah Alamudi, who the tabloids dubbed the Vamp in the Veil. She was accused of posing as a Saudi Arabian princess to mastermind a £12 million fraud. He cropped up incidentally in a high-profile 2011 case, in which the son of a Labour cabinet minister was sentenced to three years for sexual assault. But that was because it was an assault that took place inside Bishti's Battersea flat. He'd like walk in wearing a suit, sometimes it was a white shirt, trousers. You know, he sort of would play with the level of casualness he wanted to play on each day. He definitely stood out. He's not a normal defendant that you'd see in the dock. I was in court for when he, he gave a little bit of evidence and it was very sort of entitled, I have money, I can do what I want with that money, why are you bothering me with this? It's sort of the um, impression I got. Very a, uh, it's Jack, not Jack the Lad, sort of a, yeah, just obvious businessman who knew how to get people to like him, who he was, he was almost charismatic. He was quite a suave gentleman. Um, had no idea how court reporting worked because I distinctly remember on the second day of the trial, he approached um, a member of the press association and wanted to complain about something that was written in, I think it was the Times. And the press association person said, well, I can't help you there. <laughs> you know, it's just like, that's not, this isn't how it works. You know, I don't think the PA, PA had even written the copy for the Times, you know, it was someone else, but you just, you just think, what do you what do you want? You want to control the press. This is this is not something. This is not a situation in which you have control over. When he took the stand, Bishti told the jury that he felt safe having Partridge at Cirque du Soir. He told them that Soho was a bit like the Wild West, but Partridge knew how to keep the bad guys out. He'd received a lot of threats, he said, from gangs. He mentioned the doorman of the club opposite, who'd been shot dead in his driveway three weeks after he'd refused to let a gang of ten thugs enter the venue. This was how it was, he implied. You needed all the friends you could get. He wanted to give the impression that this was a waste of time. Of course, I'm having these conversations with these people. Yeah, entitled. I'd say, I'd say it was entitled. He was being cross-examined on a series of messages that were on... I, I believe, I don't think it was text messages, it was more of like a, an online portal that they were using at work with him to contact restaurant owners and clubs and, you know, clients of his. And it was a very, you know, it was, it was like he was talking to his mates. It was, it was, you know, taxis that he'd paid for and where they were going and who was in them. And I think at the end of the day, the receipts and his, it was very black and white that he'd been paying for, taxis for people who it was it was correspondences with Frank Partridge that were just yeah suspicious and besides Bishti went on in his garrulous way he just loved to put on a good time for people all right 
maybe he'd gotten a bit carried away. Maybe he'd blurred the line between his friend Frank Partridge and his licensing officer Frank Partridge. But that was because he was an entertainer at heart. A less flattering view of Bishti's true feelings emerged in what became known at trial as the Catwoman tape. This was a video, less than a minute long, retrieved from Bishti's mobile phone. It had been taken at the Cirque du Soir nightclub. In it, Frank stands front of frame in a smart white shirt. He looks drunk. A woman dances around him dressed as a cat, Michelle Pfeiffer style. She has a whip and she's not afraid to use it. At one point, she sort of coils it around his neck. Meanwhile, he behaves as any Englishman on a stag would, but turns flirty and sheepish and really quite drunk. He lets her ride down the front of his body, for instance, but tactfully evades a full whipping. Yeah, I think it's completely undercut by the fact that he sends this video of Partridge with this woman dressed as a cat woman. He sends it to his friend and is literally just titles it insurance. I think that completely cuts away this friendly, nice guy image that he was playing. The court was also shown another video. In this one, Frank can be seen dancing around with one more scantily clad vixen. This time, he has a real live python wrapped around his neck. And this time, the background music is even more on the nose. It's KRS-One's Sound of Da Police. In court, part of Partridge's defence was that he'd never tried to hide the freebies. That much did seem true. More and more, evidence kept placing Partridge at the scene of some pricey do, some exotic locale. This had the effect of sometimes making the trial seem more like one man's holiday snaps. Take, for instance, another picture of Frank introduced into evidence. This was a photo in which he was stood next to a blonde woman. She's shiny and a carotene orange in a white lace dress. Her hair has the lacquer of a sunset strip poodle rocker. Her wrists are thick with gold bangles. Five places to the right of both of them is Elton John, and next to him is David Furnish. This was an Elton AIDS Foundation charity due in September of 2014. A £3,000 a head function held at Sir Elton's Berkshire mansion for just a handful of high net worth individuals. The woman in white next to Frank is Terry Neal's wife, Soraya Henderson. By this point, an evening at Sir Elton's was just another night out. Partridge had become skilled at being bribed. Without saying too much, everyone seemed to know what the score was. Frank had only to make a few of the right noises. Take, for instance, the district nightclub in Leicester Square. A list of sexual assaults was supposed to have taken place there, so Partridge mailed off to the club, threatening them with the review of their licence. And it was Anna Genand who was at the end of those emails. She was a 35-year-old woman. She then took it upon herself to of, you know, head off any trouble, book a holiday for Frank and his family at the Mazagan Beach and Golf Resort in Morocco. It was this luxury five-star, beautiful, gorgeous hotel. I think it cost around £8,000 to avoid any suspicion. She told the resort it was Frank was her cousin and she was booking this to surprise him. It was this family holiday, but that was proved pretty uh, fatal 
when it came to court and she is just proven to have lied. The trial was mammoth. It lasted 12 weeks. Halfway in, Partridge took the stand in his own defence. Guy Toyne co-owns Court News UK. He also likes football. So he noticed a small but fatal flaw in his testimony. He told the jury that when he basically went to see a derby game between Manchester United and Manchester City. And he told the jury that the tickets, they picked up the tickets from the ground on the day. I don't mean pick them up in an envelope they've been bought six months before. Hello, at the turnstile. Now, every football fan in the UK will know what utter nonsense that is. And I can tell you one thing in my experience. One thing juries do not like is when a defendant laughs at them and says something so ridiculous and accepts them to believe it, expects them to believe it. And in this case, what utter nonsense. And it's a barefaced lie, it couldn't have been true. And so does that hark back or come back to Frank Partridge being, how can I say, a little bit lacking in the intellectual department? Because for anyone else, if you were gonna to lie to a jury, would you say that? Oh yeah, I went down to oh, yeah, went down to Old Trafford, just picked up the tickets. A little bloke on the tr Hello, how are you doing? Come on in. <laughs> yes, Will, should be a good game today. It's just nonsense. It's utter nonsense. And you can imagine how the prosecutor barrister would have just kicked him all over the pitch with that sort of rubbish. It's a matter of debate among defence attorneys whether taking the stand in your own defence is wise. Certainly, it's not obligatory. Yet, faced with the brutality of cross-examination, Partridge seems to have naively imagined that he could style it out. Yeah, it's interesting sometimes when you see... So I've been in murder trials um, and they've taken the stand and I can recall a, a case of a 19-year-old boy who was charged with murder for stabbing a 16-year-old on the bus and he took to the stand and I thought it was interesting because the CCTV was so clear that he had stabbed this boy and there was so much evidence stacked against this pre-planning, the premeditation of it all. And I saw him take the stand and I thought, surely... If you don't give the jury anything, they, the way they can read you, the way, the way, and allowing the prosecution to cross-examine you, I think it puts you in quite a very vulnerable position a lot of the time. I, don't, I think it's 50-50. Sometimes you see it in, when you expect, sometimes I expect them to take the stand, especially in cases, rape cases, when it is, you know, they are so hard to prove. It's two people in, in the majority of the time. It's his word against hers. I probably wouldn't advise to, to give evidence if, the, if it's so stacked up against you. And sometimes I think when defendants take the stands, they think they have to prove their innocence when actually they don't have to prove anything. They have every right to remain silent. It can be a bit of a slam dunk from the prosecution. On the cases that I've seen, it's very regular that the prosecution tend to come out on top with cross-examinations. It's interesting, I had it with the a watch robbery case. And I mean, he actually got found not guilty. He said that the reason his DNA had gotten to the watch was because it had been transferred 
from a hug. And I thought, is they going to believe this? Because I almost chuckled. I thought that's just ridiculous that your DNA has transferred onto this watch because you gave the person who, who actually, actually stole it a hug. It's, it, it could be quite laughable. So yeah, if it's not going to, if your defense barrister doesn't think it's going to stand up in court, I'd probably take that advice and just stay quiet. In court, Partridge was asked outright why he took the gifts. He said, I accepted them from these people I thought were my friends and still think of as my friends. I made myself content that I could accept these gifts because there was nothing in it at all. For the defence team, worse was to follow. Up on the stand, between them, Partridge and Bishti couldn't quite get their stories straight on where the £2,000 in cash had come from. And none of Partridge's 16 different bank accounts showed a withdrawal. Next, when it came to the matter of the suit fitting, the undercover cops testified to overhearing the killer phrase, you keep them sweet and I'll sort the contracts out. But Partridge flat out denied the conversation ever took place. For his part, security boss Terry Neal said it was probably some kind of Chinese whispers. At sentencing, Judge Hayhoe was scathing on this point. At least, he said, Mr Neal had the good sense not to accuse a police officer of lying. It's one of those things that courts take very seriously, and any former cop should know that. Of all the allegations, the one Partridge denied the most vehemently was about the call girls, though the judge did not find his denial to be credible. The CCTV had clearly showed Bishti picking them up from reception, and just an hour later, it showed them leaving. At 3am, that would be a long way to go to deliver a pizza. Bishti had also apparently saved their number in his mobile phone under brass, brass rubbers, scrubbers, Cockney rhyming slang for prostitutes. The problem was that Partridge's Italian wife had stood by him throughout it all. Evidently, out of the vast litany of his dirty laundry, this was the one allegation that neither could bear to hear. In fact, looked at from the inside, many of the stories of the corruption of the Sheriff of Soho seemed to paint a rather sweet picture of domestic bliss between the pair, not least the Coe and Florist or the Metallica tickets that he received, which he used to treat his Milanese mother-in-law to a night out on her 60th birthday. In the intervening years, the Partridge family had moved to Spain. His wife did not turn up for the trial, whether for his benefit or hers. And by the time proceedings finally got underway in 2023, Partridge looked a lot sharper, younger even, than he had in that long-ago mugshot. He was teetotal now, he said. And at sentencing, his barrister leaned heavily on the idea of him turning over a new leaf. Of course, in the many years that had passed, not all relationships had fared so well. It made for an odd, uncomfortable spectacle when these people were jammed back together in the dock. Soraya Henderson, for instance, seemed to physically detest the hours she was forced to spend next to her ex-husband, Terry Neal. She was so glamorous in the sense of what she was wearing. I remember she was always wearing these like really big earrings and jewelry, like that was really prominent of what she was wearing. She would always come with jewelry, but she was quite separate from the group, I thought. I don't think, I don't remember seeing her interacting with the others. I mean, I know they're not allowed to talk in the dock, but 
there was just something, an air to her that was, she, she, she stood out. She was very well put together. She always had lovely clothes. Her hair was always perfect. And she just, she was quite quiet. I mean, she was quiet. I, don't, I didn't see her talk to anyone but her lawyer. Sometimes you have it with defendants where they will actually smile to you. They might talk to you. They might, you know, everyone sort of says good morning, like afternoon. And she just, I never, I never got that from her. It was very, a very absent figure, but she was so glamorous and so, you know, put, I don't want to say she was putting on a show, but it was like, you know, she knew that she was going to be looked at. Soraya Henderson and Terry Neal, they'd met in two, married in 2002, but they had this very messy and unfriendly divorce is maybe how you'd put it. Henderson had wanted to turn state's evidence to testify against her co-defendants, including her ex. Quite late in the day, the Crown Prosecution Service told her that she couldn't because she wouldn't be a credible witness. The prosecution turned around and said, no, you're not a credible witness because from another court case in 2018, she'd attempted to, well, she'd forged these documents attempt, and so attempted to take ownership of TSS and was found in contempt of court. Yeah, the other defence in the dock heard about this and must have felt pretty betrayed. And so you could see there was a fracture in the dock. Terry Neal looks like what he is, an ex-armed robber, a bullet of a man, bald, stocky, muscular, short. Terry used to brag of his connections to the notorious Adams crime family, but then he went straight-ish and built a legitimate security business alongside Soraya. When Neil got into the witness box, he lavished praise on his ex-wife. He said she was the secret source in TSS's growth. He lamented the divorce and, crucially, he gave her a big out. He said that she had nothing to do with Partridge's corruption. Was this a genuine olive branch or was it simply done for defensive reasons? And when it came to the question of his life carousing with Frank, Neil told the jury that Partridge was simply his buddy. When Neil was going through his divorce, he said it was to Frank he turned. And by the same token, when Frank's dad had been going through terminal cancer, it was these drink-fueled strip club binges with Terry that got him through it. There may or may not have been a dry eye in the house, but the jury did not shirk its duty. Only Soraya Henderson beat her charges. By this point, we should say also that Ryan Bishti's mother had been let go. The prosecution had presented no evidence, as the legal phrase goes. On July 18th of this year, Judge Hayher returned to sentence Partridge, calling him thoroughly corrupt. He got seven and a half years. In September, it was the turn of the rest. I'm uh, Nick Forbes, and I'm a reporter uh, here at Central News. So we've just come from the sentencing of the three remaining defendants. What was it like? It was a dramatic moment, as sentences often are. There's a lot of build-up to the moment the judge says how long they're going to get in prison, because we knew they were up for custodial sentences of one form or another. And before that, you have the, the build-up, the mitigation, why these defendants shouldn't be given uh, as strict a sentence as they could be given. And their lawyers are kind of bandying to try and present them in the best possible light to ensure the judge looks on them kindly. Uh, and all that happened times three today, because there were three defendants. Uh, Terry Neal's solicitor suggested that uh, Neal should be kind of rewarded for not having tried to hide anything in what he was doing. He, when he took uh, Mr. Partridge out to, 
to, to get him uh, kitted up in a brand new bespoke suit with six monogram shirts. Um, he said that, you know, they weren't hiding that. It wasn't behind closed doors. It wasn't brown uh, paper bags full of money or anything. Judge Hare came back with the quite reasonable point that, well, they were just being arrogant. And they wouldn't have done that if they had had any kind of sense that they might get caught. And it was just the fact they didn't know they were being watched by a police officer while that was happening that led them to act in such an open way. So um, rather than, you know, being a point in his favour, that, that kind of went against him. And I felt Hare handled those points very well. Um, and gave his sentencing at the end of the hearing in a way that was in keeping with uh, you know, his comments throughout. We were approached by Ryan Bishti's PR man in the lobby. We were, yeah, again, a new one for me. I've not, I've not come across that phenomenon of the, the PR man. Um, this was a, a very well-spoken uh, PR man who came across and sort of identified us somehow as a gaggle of journalists and said, I'm a PR man for Bishti. Ryan Bushdi will be giving a statement later. So very keen to get on the front foot with Bushdi's response to whatever sentence was going to happen. This was before we knew what, what the judge had in store for him. An expression of kind of attempt to control the situation, perhaps, from, from the dock before he goes to prison. And, and yeah, that was, that was interesting. And um, I think the, the statement when we did get it was, was that he was going to appeal uh, his sentence. I think it was, actually, yeah. Does he have a, an automatic right to appeal it? Well, I think they have a right to appeal, but um, whether there's a grounds for an appeal is another matter. And I would think that because the jury found him guilty, it's unlikely they might be able to appeal the sentence. But the sentence seemed quite fair based on Judge Hare's, you know, comments and so forth and how they had ample opportunity to to mitigate. So I'm not sure what grounds they would use for that. Um, but he has a right to, and I'm sure that given Bishti's position again his as, as wealthy kind of successful businessman he's likely to to try and make that happen by hook or by crook and then we get to anna genand the last of the defendants how did she react yeah oh hers was was quite a bit more um emotional i suppose you might say um in her case i i felt that she brought a lot of a lot of it, she felt like she was on the line here in a big way in a bigger way perhaps than than neil and bishti because as I mentioned before, she's uh, the carer for, for her children and the, 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 they were genuinely going to suffer by the sounds of it if, if she were to be put away because her husband is another defendant in this case who's been found guilty, who will be sentenced later this year. Um, he wasn't at today's hearing because of uh, health uh, reasons. And so when the judge told her basically that in his view, she wasn't a threat to society, she's unlikely to reoffend, and that she only got involved in this whole sorry business in the first place because her husband had roped her into it, essentially. When the judge said that you know, she therefore shouldn't be given a custodial sentence, but it should instead be given a uh, suspended sentence, which means she wouldn't go to prison at all and could, could just go home that day, you could see the emotion kind of spilling over at that point. As she did cry in the dock, she, she wept quite openly. So he gave her a 20-month suspended sentence, which means she's not going to go to prison, but if she reoffends in that time period, that, would, that sentence would be activated. Bishti got four years, reduced by 20% because of the extraordinary amount of time the case had taken to get to court. Neil got 30 months, similarly reduced. From eight to one, the selfishness of Frank Partridge had been a flame that had caught quickly on the bone-dry tinder of the easily corruptible. And occasionally also sucked in some more oblivious types along the way. As Judge Hayher pointed out, corruption is catching. 
If you don't stamp on it hard, it begins to feed on itself. We were lucky, Heher said, to live in a country where corruption is a rarity. That luck came from the will to catch and prosecute the likes of Frank. On that score, the sheer mediocrity of Frank Partridge's crimes should cheer us all up. Though, it will be of little cheer to a policeman now stood on the wrong side of the iron bars. Do we know what happens to coppers in jail? There are a lot of them at the moment. A police officer's lot is not a happy one. Uh, the problem is, jails are not like uh, we see, how can I say, on the Shawshank Redemption, where we have some decent guys and some not-so-decent guys or whatever. It doesn't really work out like that. Um, there's a lot of bullies in prison. And years ago, we used to say that people would have to go on what we called the rule. And the rule was basically a segregation block. And they must still have some types of segregation blocks. Obviously, the people who tend to be housed in those blocks are paedophiles and uh, serious sexual offenders. In my experience, other convicts, inmates, really do detest these sorts of people, sex offenders. And of course, the other type of offender they really detest is the ex-police officer. And it's going to be very difficult. There's no way that he can hide his conviction or his occupation from those inside. And you can imagine the level of bullying and how one prisoner will brag to another, or oh, why had that Frank go in the other day, all this sort of stuff. And you can imagine the level of abuse. It's going to be very depressing for Frank Partridge. And again, he should have known this. He's seen people in prison. He should have known what was going to await him if he was convicted. How is it that he basically, his moral sense, his judgment, completely left him? So now it might be that after a year or so, he might get moved to an open jail, be tending the strawberry patch at Ford or someone like that. Not too bad. But even there, there's going to be some, some strange guys who are going to want to make a point. And he's basically going to be looking over his shoulder for the entire time uh, he serves that sentence. Fresh from the Old Bailey is produced by me, Gavin Haynes, in partnership with Court News UK. Sound mix is by Jonathan Webb. You can follow us on Twitter. Court News also has an excellent weekly substack with the podcast Killers of the Old Bailey, featuring Britain's most experienced murder case reporter, Grandmel Gray. The British legal system makes it hard to contact those involved, so if you have personal knowledge of aspects of the Sheriff of Soho case or of other cases we've covered, contact us through our Gmail, freshfromtheoldbailey at gmail.com. Discretion assured. <laughs>